0: The den. So go tell a friend. The best podcast on earth is how to begin. We got jokes and news and movie reviews after dark NC17 with the crew, interviews with the best artists around. So like, comment, subscribe, the show's starting right now. Let's go. Like, comment, subscribe, the show's starting right now. Welcome to Down in the Den. It's your host, Mars, and thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. And today I am stoked because all heroes don't wear capes. We have someone here that has been an educator for over a decade, someone that truly has fought for the people in activism and just being there. And now she is running for governor of the grand old commonwealth of virginia ladies and gentlemen welcome miss princess Blandy to the show princess how are you doing today
1: i am well thank you for having me how are you
0: i'm doing well thank you so much for carving out some of your time i know you're busy with the campaign and life in general so thank you so much for carving out some time so we can talk about your candidacy and talk about what's going on in our state so thank you again
1: thing. Thanks
0: for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's get right into it. I always tell everyone my, I'm a big nerd. I'm a big comic book fan. I grew up. Re- that's how I actually learned to read through my big brother by me Batman comic books. And I always say every hero has an origin. So tell the people, tell the den mates who might not know that you're running for governor, who might not know your mission statement. Tell us your origin story and what inspired you to make this change and run for governor of Virginia.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm actually originally from upstate New York, a little uh, city called Newburgh, New York. And, uh, you know, my family essentially, uh, while I was in undergrad school at Morgan State University pursuing my bachelor's in biology, my family came down to Middle Peninsula of Virginia, fountain land, and that's all she wrote. You know, they started, uh, you know, uh, building homes and they were anxious to move us from upstate New York down here to Virginia and, and rural Virginia to just provide us for a bet, uh, you know, better opportunities in a safer environment. And so um, just kind of fast forward and I pursued my bachelor's in biology, which I earned at Morgan State University. And by the time I graduated in 2004, my family had already settled down here in Virginia. And I oftentimes joke and tell people I kind of got stuck here. I needed to be where my support system was because at that time I had my one-year-old, um, uh, my, which is my oldest daughter, and I wanted to be closer to my support system so that I can continue to pursue my my education. And so uh, it was a transition going from New York to Baltimore to down here, uh, you know, in rural Virginia. But this is my home that I absolutely love dearly. Uh, my career have changed from pre-med to me quickly seeing that the medical field was not for me, but I had wanted to be a pediatrician because I wanted to help young people. And at such a young age, I remember sixth grade saying, I want to be a baby doctor. So helping kids correlated to being a baby doctor in my young young mind. But that was the door that opened up to what uh, later turned into me becoming an educator. And I was still able to help uh, our youth. So I am a veteran teacher. Um, I've had an opportunity to teach Uh, at the middle school level and also serve as an assistant principal at the elementary and high school level. What brought me to where I am now and as being a candidate for governor is uh, May 14th, 2018, my life changed. My family's life changed. My brother, uh, Marcus David Peters, uh, was one of my teachers. At Essex High School, so I was an assistant principal. He was a high school biology teacher at Essex High School, and after he completed a full day of teaching, he you know uh, you know started his path home and him rifle towards Richmond, and he essentially ended up having a mental health crisis. My brother was murdered by a Richmond police officer while he was unarmed, completely undressed, and having his very first mental health crisis. And as I say, and I will continue to say, my brother needed help, not death. As the same is with so many people who are experiencing mental health crises. Uh, you know, I, I remember, and I say all the time that I never had time to truly breathe because the headlines was basically crazy black naked man. and I refused to let that go because the media, the city, and the state tried to take my brother's lowest moment and cause that to define him, you know, and to erase all of the amazing things that he did. They didn't want to tell you that he graduated top of his class, uh, you know, in high school. He was the graduating speaker. They didn't want to tell you that he was a graduate from BCU, uh, you know, who earned his bachelor's in biology, undergrads, uh, uh, minors, excuse me, in psychology, chemistry, and Spanish, which he became fluent in. You know, they didn't want to tell you that he was a law-abiding citizen, you know, who again had a mental health crisis and when he was in need of help you know a police officer served as judge jury and executioner on the spot and so myself family members and a continuously growing base of supporters uh you know have basically said you know we can't bring Marcus back but what we can do is enact legislation that would ensure that mental health professionals are the first responders and not police officers um and, you know, we, on a local and state level, our legislators ignored us. You know, we went before city council. We were told to trust the system and that failed, as it always does. And, you know, it wasn't until uh, May of last summer, 2020, after the unjust murder of George Floyd, that, you know, there was a national outcry, you know, for police accountability. And there was an uprise, which included in the city of Richmond, And I was a heavy hand in that uprising. The people, the community members, you know, said, you know, wait a minute, you know, we had our own George Floyd and his name was Marcus David Peters. It was easy for our elected officials to say that George Floyd's murder was unjust because that was not in their jurisdiction. It was not in their own backyard. Yet they refused to utter the name Marcus David Peters. And so it wasn't until 2020, May 2020, that legislators, in my opinion, out of fear of the uprising that, hey, Princess, now we need to work with you on this market alert bill that you've been calling for since 2018. And now we need to work with you on other important uh, bills, such as uh, the bill to end qualified immunity and the uh, Independence Family Review Board. And it was essentially performative. It was performative to eat the, ease attention. And what we got was weak, watered down, ineffective legislations, in many cases, or they killed the bills altogether. And it, it was those moments, it was during the uprise, that I remember saying, on the streets, it's time for the rise of a strong independent party because I knew that we could no longer continue to beg our oppressors to be our saviors because they're not. In Virginia, the Democratic Party is the majority in the House, Senate, and we have a Democratic governor, so they can't blame the Republicans. They have the votes. However, They uh, choose to continue to put profit and politics over the voices, needs, and concerns of the people. And I knew that it was time for us to expand our fight from the streets and into the seats of these key elected uh, positions, excuse me, in order to claim the full course meal that we all deserve. And that's ensuring that liberation is a human right, not a professional opportunity.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story and my condolences to you and your family. I have an older brother that I lost about five years ago, so I understand how it is. And I couldn't even imagine losing someone that way. So my condolences, and I thank you so much for your strength to actually fight the right way and get the change done legislatively. And you're absolutely right. We have another show on our network called Politics As Usual, where we partner with a non-for-profit organization called CUSP, keeping us safe and prosperous, which focus on police brutality and and making sure that we're protected. So thank you, of course. And and obviously right now after the Derek Chauvin case and the death of George Floyd and and the influx of so many people of color that have been, as you just so elegantly mentioned, was judge, jury and execution by officers. So police brutality is huge and unfortunately, our Commonwealth has been in the news more than a, a few times recently with the police shootings in Virginia Beach and the military man that was pulled over in Waverly. So uh, one of the big things, and, and you mentioned that Virginia is a democratic state. We're a blue state all down the line. Uh, but I notice a lot of politicians on both sides are scared, even former President Obama, uh, he. I, I don't want to say defund the police. He he, he actually <laughs> said that. You know, don't use that term. What is your stance? Because we hear defund, we hear reform, we hear retrain, we hear abolish. There's a lot of of keywords out there. What is your stance on how we can make the police what they're supposed to be—someone that protects and serves—or is it an institution that really has to be removed and rebuilt to something for us? That can actually help us. What is your stance, and what we, what do you think we can do, especially here in the Commonwealth, to make the police something that's for everyone that actually serves instead of executing people in the middle of the street?
1: Right. And you know, you hit a lot of key points, and I think you kind of answered your question for you. You know, for yourself. Uh, You know, you kind of took some of the words right out of my mouth, but. You know, as you stated, you know, we have a lot of people who are in position of power that are taking the path of least resistance. You know, uh, you can't say that black lives matter, but you're not willing to uh, pass legislation that shows the black liberation matters, you know. And so it was very easy, especially during the uprising, when there's tension to wear that shirt, to wear that hag and wave that flag. However, You know, they're doing things that are very symbolic, such as making Juneteenth a national holiday, such as removing, you know, these Confederate monuments. That's nice. However, my people were still oppressed, you know. And so when we hear people who are fearful of the words, uh, you know, uh, uh, defund the police, you know, I say that they are taking the easy way out and they are, you know, putting politics and profits over the needs of people. And I absolutely support defunding the police. You know, and I will take a moment for those who refuse to allow, to to take the time to educate themselves, to let them know when we say defund the police, what we're talking about is reallocating funds to systems of care. Police cannot address everything from A to Z. As a school administrator, when my babies had a mental health crisis, I was required to call the police and they had to be escorted out of the school, you know, be the police. You know, that is, it, it is very embarrassing and it is very humiliating and it kind of punishes the person for having a mental health crisis. When we look at substance abuse, you know, um, you know, when we look at even traffic stops, we do not need armed police officers to address everything from A to Z. And the reality is, they're not trained to uh, address everything from A to Z. We have now here in in Virginia, I believe, uh, five out of the eight adult uh, mental health facilities are going to be closing. So, what does that mean? When people have a mental, now we're going to have an uptick. We're going to have an increase in people who are dealing with mental health uh, crises. Not only the police being called, but them being incarcerated when they need help, you know, when they need uh, resources. And so this system, in my opinion, you know, cannot. And when I talk about this, system, I'm talking about our police departments, our criminal injustice system. You know, it cannot be reformed. OK, we can by defunding the police. That's just a step. It's a step in the direction that we need to take is what get, is getting to the point of abolishing the police. And again, those are those are scary because the the media makes it scary. What right. we're saying is creating a system that, from its inception, that puts the needs, the voices, you know, and concerns. And, you know, putting humanity and equity first, you know, the system was not meant to ensure liberty and justice for all. And that's why we don't get liberty and justice. It's not broken. It is functioning the way that it has been created, you know, to function. So we need a brand new system that centers equity and humanity and that works for all of us. And what's in place right now does not, you know, between systemic racism, which is a, a huge variable, you know, the continuous biases, you know, in policing you know, we're going to continue to, as Einstein said, you can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. Throwing more money at the police is not going to, to do the job because there's still no level of accountability. Doing more training, is still not the solution because there's no level of accountability. As an educator and former pre-med student, I know that as a teacher, as a nurse, as a doctor, if you're trained as a doctor or nurse, and CPR and you stand there and watch a person turn in blue and you do nothing to help them, you will be held accountable for your lack of action. However, police officers can go through CIT training, you know, uh, crisis intervention training and any other training. And when they don't use the tools that they have been trained to use, they're not held accountable. So that makes it very dangerous, especially to black and brown people, especially to our most marginalized communities. And I absolutely, as governor, will move forward with first step being uh, passing a bill to unqualified immunity. We must hold our police officers accountable for their actions and moving towards creating a more inclusive, uh, equitable, uh, humane uh, system for all of us.
0: That is music to my ears and it's something that we talk about on politics as usual all the time. We are a big proponent of defunding the police. And and I think the key word, and as a a former educator, and I always say you're always an educator once you become an educator, that is absolutely right. I feel in a lot of cases, the police are bringing a sledgehammer when they should be bringing a a scalpel and, and really having more compassion. Now, you mentioned systemic racism, and that is something that we hear so many politicians don't even want to admit that it exists, which is a problem with me because anybody can Google for two seconds and see where the systemic racism lies. What do you feel is something we can do to combat systemic racism besides legislation to really get in the hearts and and minds of the people where they realize that this isn't a broken system? You're absolutely right. It's working efficiently and exactly how how it was designed. But how do we get to the hearts and minds of the people, because I think that's where it begins.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm a, a, you know, I'm grassroots at heart. You know, that's, that's where my beginnings start. And I believe we must start building our communities up from within, you know, everything can't be top down, you know, you know, simple things as they're not simple, but important, you know, uh, uh, steps that are not necessarily legislative steps. But when I look at the Marcus David Peter circle, that is a space before they put up that barrier of oppression, you know, uh, that was very inclusive. I mean, people, it was very diverse. People felt free to be them, people who would never ever talk to each other, you uh, you know, or intermingle, they did that, you know, because it was a very liberating space where people were able to come and contribute how they felt you know, that they were able to contribute. They were able to just be themselves. You know, the energy there was amazing. So we must be very intentional with creating opportunities and spaces that are diverse, that are inclusive. We do not need any more monuments to come up. You know, I heard people, you know, people have asked me numerous times, do you think that we need a monument of your brother? No, we don't. You know, the, the, the Marcus David Peter Circle. its name is enough. But we're appreciative of that. But we need places that are not hovering over us. You know, in a dictator, oppressive uh, uh, way, but in a way that says you are all welcome here. Let's learn about each other. Let's grow from each other. And when one of us is hurting, all of us are hurting. Let's work to keep each other's self safe. Excuse me. When if there's something that I can do that can help you, you know what I mean, then I'm going to do it. You know, like we, our campaign, my heart is very heavily built on two main things. That's equity. And humanity. And you don't need legislation for that. You know, we must start funding, you know, some of our community members and organizers and supporting them that are already doing the work. We have a lot of people who are on the ground who you will never see, you will never hear that are already doing the work. They're answering those calls for community care, you know. And so when we talk about. You know, how do we, you know, I can't beat racism out of somebody. I can't incarcerate somebody to the point where they uh, don't become a a, a racist, but I can facilitate conversations, right? I can uh, uh, facilitate opportunities for us all to occupy the same space and to see the humanity in each other. And I had the opportunity to not only see that within the Marcus uh, David Peter circle and during the uprise where I kept saying to people, I said, this time is different. They're like, what do you mean? There's always been process. Uh, But this time is different. And when I said that, what I felt, what I experienced is that on the front line, we had doctors, we had nurses, we had new grads, we had people with no education, people with a lot of education, black, white, Latinx, you name it. It was so diverse, but we all stood there again on equity and humanity. That's what we was fighting for, you know? And so when we look at those, instead of continuously focus on focusing on the obviouses, you know, which is our differences, and look at, wait a minute, but there are some main, we all need water, we all need food, we all need shelter, you know? And be able to be intentional. You know, a lot of times we gotta be intentional and we have to learn to become comfortable having these uncomfortable conversations. A lot of times we skirt them in the workplace, in our homes, in church, talk about it. And it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, right? But we, it starts with the conversation, right? Because a lot of times, you know, you'll end up seeing that, wait a minute, me and this person have more in common than I thought, you know, that that we had, you know, or there's something that I can do to help this person or something that they can do. So I don't believe in, uh, you know, always being top down, you know, and prescriptive, but I do believe that we must get into our communities and tap into people. Like, we can't. I believe that we must not pass any legislation about the people without the people. So we need the impact of people to be at these tables. I don't care about your education. I don't care about your title. I, we can no longer keep having, uh, you know, uh, legislators who are making decisions about the people without the people. And they're making it from oftentimes positions of, of privilege. Right. That's going to continue to keep us divided. And it's not going to bring us together. So let's bring people together. Let's have conversations. Let's find out what the needs are, and let's work together for a more diverse, inclusive, liberated Virginia.
0: I, I love that answer. Thank you so much. Now, uh, 2020 really kicked us all, uh, kicked us all, and brought us down. But it also really, I feel like, it woke the country up to some uncomfortable truths that they really weren't ready to address. And, and one of the biggest discrepancies that we've noticed is health care for black and brown people. Uh, COVID-19 really hindered that demographic probably more than any other demographic. And we've seen it all across the country. Uh, I know one of your... One of the tools that you're running on, one of the aspects that you're running on is not only public health, but also mental health. Um, yes. What do you think we can do to really make it where people realize that public health, mental health, physical health is a, is a right. It's not a privilege. It, it should be a right. Um, what do you think we can do, especially here in the Commonwealth, to really help public health and close that gap, you know, wh- Black women are are dying at childbirth at an astronomical rate. We're dying of COVID at an astronomical rate. We're seeing, literally, if you go into some urban areas, all you see is liquor store, fast food, liquor store, fast food, where you're actually seeing environmental racism. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think can be done to really help close that gap with physical health and mental health, especially for people of color.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you just, you know, within the mouth, you know, for you said a lot, you know, uh, because, you know, whether we're looking at, you know, even the, the food deserts, right? You know, we're looking at how, you know, a lot of our black communities, they don't have access to healthy foods, right? When we talk about healthcare, we strongly believe that, you know, uh, you know, access to healthy food is a human right, not a privilege. Medicare for all is a is a human right, not a privilege. Like I've met people who are going to have to go out to another country, you know, to get health care, uh, you know, services because we refuse to, you know, give it to them. And we're the 10th wealthiest state in, in the country. That does not make sense, you know. But again, everything is about profit, you know, it's about profit and or politics. And so we must make sure that everyone, you know, is covered, that everyone has health care coverage. That is a basic human right that we're asking You know, I have a dad who's been a diabetic since 13 years old. He's been dropped from insurance time after time. He is, he's young. My dad is young, but he is, you know, diabetes that he didn't ask or it was nothing that he did wrong. It has broken his system down so severely. He's on dialysis. He's had, you know, major arteries that, you know, he has had to have triple bypass surgery. Some are permanently blocked, you know, but Again, he still doesn't even get the quality care that he needs. As a, when you talk about black mamas, you know, with my youngest daughter who is four years old, you know, I had her two months early. And you know, the signs that something was wrong were flying high, you know. I remember my cousin who's a neonatologist in Atlanta, you know, getting on the phone with the emergency room. I called her one day after going to Rite Aid. I was in the hospital to see my dad who was, you know, as they said that I would be losing him. Thankfully he's still here. So I was in New York to see my dad and, you know, I started, my legs were swelling and so on and I knew something wasn't right. And so I didn't want to get admitted into the hospital, but I figured it was blood pressure. So I go to Rite Aid, have my brother take me and blood pressure was like 150 over 100 something way high. So I called my cousin who's a neonatologist and, you know, she's like, get back to that hospital now, you know, like you and your baby are at risk but they didn't pay us any mind. I sat in that emergency room for so long and she finally like had to put her foot down and kind of, you know, really get stern with them and said, look, I am very concerned that, you know, she's going to have that baby. And I was two months early and surely enough the, the quality of care was horrible i traveled back to uh virginia and literally within less than 24 hours i had an emergency a medical emergency and i was told you are the, the the you know sickest patient in the hospital at this point and i had to take my baby they had to take my baby which she's fine thankfully now but you know my point is is that they didn't listen you know like i was telling them how i was feeling you know i was telling them you know my cousin was telling them but they waved it off you know and oftentimes, you know That's happened. I had a recent medical scare as well. And I literally went to the emergency room three, I think two or three times within like a week, you know, went to urgent care. And it's like it it went over. So I had to jump on a doctor Google and kind of do my own homework. So when I went back again, I said, well, look, according to X, Y and Z, this is probably what I have going on. You know, so uh, inequitable, even care, you know, in the hospitals, you know, for black and brown people is definitely a problem because oftentimes they don't believe us. You know, they don't believe us, you know, or they they, they think that it's something else, you know, drug induced or that we're exaggerating. And that right there puts us at a higher risk, you know, not having the full scope of education and access, you know, to even things such as COVID-19 vaccine. There's a lot of mistrust in the health uh, field, you know? So when we're being told to take this vaccine and we, you know, the Tuskegee, you know, thing comes back to, to my mind and I'm like, wait a minute, you know? So I know if I'm feeling that way, there's a lot of people who are questioning, you know, is the government really telling us what's in our, you know, best interest? So we must do a better job at being transparent You know, with meeting people where they are and giving them all of the information that they need to make informed decisions and making, uh, you know, access to healthcare uh, easily accessible as well. Because that's a problem, uh, you know, with a lot of people in our most marginalized communities as well.
0: Absolutely. Princess, it has been a pleasure. You are wise beyond your years. And I and everything you said hits home, your story, your drive your ability to recognize and make change. And I am wishing you great success. Um, the the two party system I said for a long time has been broken. And too, too often we're forced to choose between bad and worse. And we support, we endorse you here at Down in the Den. Your story is epic. Um, your views are epic. I think you're the change. You're young, you're intelligent. You've been in the field. You know what's going on. So we wish you the best success. Please tell the mates how they can support you, where they can find you, and where they can learn more about your campaign. We want to raise those funds. We want to get you in all the debates. We want to make sure that you're on the ticket because I think you're exactly what the Commonwealth needs to get us where we need to be. So please tell the mates where they can find you, where they can support you.
1: Sure. Well, thank you for your endorsement. I greatly appreciate that. And, you know, I absolutely will be on the ballot. And so our goal now, you know, our mission now, and we claim nothing short of victory, is to ensure that we actually win this upcoming election. And, you know, what's taking place now is, as I, you know, stated earlier, I believe I stated, you know, I am running under the newly formed Liberation Party. And so I am not, you know, a Democrat nor Republican. So they're being very intentional with keeping me out of debate. But I'm a strong believer that when a door is closed on you, you kick like hell and you create your own opening. And that's what we will continue to do. And so if you all could, you know, when you say, how can you help? You can go ahead and, you know, learn more about our campaign at www. PrincessBlanding.com. share on social media like crazy, text your friends, your family, because what they want is for us not, you know, to erase us. They don't want Virginians to know that they do not have to choose between the lesser of the two evils. They do not want Virginians to know about our campaign. So the biggest help is word of mouth and sharing on social media like like, like a wildfire, and also we always are greatly appreciative of donations. We do not take donations from corporations, as we will not allow them to be our mouthpiece. We will continue to fight fearlessly, and the people will guide us.
0: Absolutely. Well, we will put all of your information on this episode. You're a official denmate. We always do a stamp. Thank you. <laughs> so you are an official stamp. We will be sharing your information until this campaign uh, ends Weekly, we'll be putting posts and everything because we want, especially here in Virginia, here in the 757, 804, all of the uh, counties and cities, we need great leadership. And I think you're the perfect person to lead us into the new generation. So thank you so thank much you. for joining us here. Um, everybody, please check out Princess. She is making great moves, great strides. and I And I honestly believe... We don't have to just pick the lesser of evils anymore. Let's pick someone of the people, for the people, by the people. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank and as you, always, Alex. deuces. Bye.
0: So like, comment, subscribe. The show's starting right now. Let's go. Like, comment, subscribe. The show starting right now.